And in this particular case, I'm thinking of the end of 2017, early 2018, when I thought the dollar should be strong and it should rally. And actually, the dollar tanked. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guest, Tanya Reef. Tanya, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So let's... Let's kick it off. I want to introduce you to the audience. Tanya is the founder and CIO of Senda Digital Assets. Prior to her cryptocurrency focus, she built her investment pedigree at top macro hedge funds, including Soros Fund Management, Lorian Capital, Citadel, and Alphadine Asset Management. She was profiled in the 50 Leading Women in Hedge Funds 2017 survey by the Hedge Fund Journal. Her career spans public policy beginnings at the IMF and experience in the banking industry at Citigroup's economic and market analysis team. She holds a PhD in economics with distinction from Columbia University, where she's earned the Jagdish Bhagwati International Economics Award for her work in currency dynamics. Tanya, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me here. It's a lot of fun to participate. So I think I have a pretty unique story. I grew up in Venezuela, and that is a country that has had terrible economic implosion. And most of the adjustment valve over the years that the government has used to help stabilize its macroeconomic imbalance, its fiscal imbalance, has been through the exchange rate. So my country has gone through really, really devastating currency crisis over the years. Really, what I'm talking about is, as you guys know, in Asia, but you know, people in, in Africa, and uh, in Zimbabwe, in Nigeria, in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Argentina, all over the world, in a lot of emerging market countries, we have lived through this. We have these big currency dislocations with 100%, 200% depreciation of your local currency in a matter of weeks, sometimes even less. And that proves very traumatic. It was certainly traumatic for me growing up. So I have a very visceral understanding of what that feels like, what that felt like for my immediate family, for my friends, for my country. And eventually that led me to study economics, to study currency crises, and eventually to trade, to work both in the public sector and in the private sector and to trade currencies. And right now has led me to really submerge myself in the world of cryptocurrencies and rebuilding the business that I am because I think my whole life has been around currency crises and trying to think about them, prevent them, trade around them and survive them. (laughs) And when you're talking about the types of crisis that you're talking about, it's like, I mean, absolute disaster. Even in, in the Asian financial crisis, which was started in Thailand in 1997, Basically, our currency was fixed at 25 to the dollar. And by the end of the year, so it was middle of the year, we had the crisis. By the end of the year, we were at about 56 or 58 baht to the dollar. But slowly, that started to come back. And we got 
We never got back to 25 baht to the dollar, but let's say we've been at 28 to 35. Whereas the type of currency collapse that you're talking about, and you've talked about Venezuela, you mentioned you know Zimbabwe, you've mentioned Egypt, Argentina, I think you mentioned, Nigeria. These are like collapses that things don't come back from. And I just wondered, like, how does a country survive that? Because already in Thailand, when I experienced that collapse, it was already brutal. And economic growth collapsed by 11% in 1998. How do countries survive? How do people survive? Yeah, absolutely. So it's really devastating. Growth tends to collapse like it did in Asia in the mid-90s. And there is really a distinction between the country and the people. You see, like what happens is a lot of the time, a big depreciation, depending on the country, but let's say you just take my country as an example, and a lot of these emerging markets, you know, Nigeria, Argentina, et cetera, I mean, these are commodity exporters. That's not the case in Asia, of course, but just to give you an example that I think is, you know, makes it quick to understand, my country is just very simple. We export oil and we import everything else, but mm. the government revenues, are in dollars because they are the ones exporting oil and all their expenses are in local currency. So when you have a big currency depreciation, the fiscal imbalance suddenly balances because their revenues are now worth a lot more than their expenses. So what happens is once you have this big depreciation, the balance of payments, the external balance looks better. So exports look better relative to imports because now all the imports are very expensive for people and the fiscal balances are suddenly better. So the country as the sovereign survives and does better. I mean, at least temporarily, they have a boost in their fiscal imbalances, but the people that consume goods that are often imported, that have big pass-through of currency depreciation to inflation, they do a lot worse. Mm -hmm. So they do suffer. Their living standards plummet in many cases, you know, for a very, very long period of time. And in my country, actually, we've had, you know, really catastrophic situations of famines, of people actually dying because they don't have access to proper medicine, to proper food. So it's actually a really devastating adjustment. So it's an adjustment that the country eventually has to make, you know, for the sovereign to survive and be viable. I think, you know, it's a deeper conversation. We can argue whether there are better ways to make that adjustment. But for the people, it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And a lot of them actually don't survive, even though the country, you know, chugs along. So it is really a very traumatic experience. And anybody that has lived through that does not forget. And that's why I say the people in countries like mine, we are all, you know, expert currency traders. You know, <laughs> every taxi driver in my, in my home country is, a, is an effects trader. And, and I think that's true for a lot of countries that have found themselves in similar situations. Yeah, it's a good point that your country is a commodity exporter, which means that you've got something that's just actually, you know, now bringing you more dollars relative to the local currency. And in Thailand, as an example, we weren't a commodity exporter. We were a product exporter. And the result was, of course, our products look cheaper in the market. Exactly. And, and that and also tourism was cheaper. And so there was, you know, a recovery that was that was happening. But, you know, it's interesting. Better. 
Yeah. 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 So the each case is different, and that's why you know we can't really you know fully generalize. There's different kinds of mismatches in the in the financial sector in the case of Thailand. In you know, and there are other reasons why these things happen. But when they do happen, what is important to remember is that for the layman, for the person in, within the country, it's really devastating because there is a huge pass through to inflation, and you know their living standards just plummet immediately. Now, in the aftermath, countries that are able to take advantage of the cheaper exchange rate to export do much better than countries that have an inelastic export and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing I would mention on is just the idea that you're talking about devastating impact. And no matter what the shock is, I mean, for maybe 100 million people, the estimates are 75 to 100 million people were pushed into poverty as a result of global lockdowns. And that's a devastating impact that will, you know, it's very hard to get out of poverty once you've gotten knocked back down. And I know, you know, in my own businesses that we got knocked back pretty hard. And so, you know, devastating impacts is what we want to try to avoid in this world, hopefully, that we don't have as as many of them. You know, I just wanted to ask one other question since you've got so much experience in the crypto space. One of the things that was the promise of crypto was that it was going to be able to get people it was a decentralized thing that was going to get people kind of away from the control of the U.S. government. And, you know, it was going to be peer to peer and therefore, you know, not just U.S. government. It could be another government. Like some people say, OK, well, the Myanmar government is very repressive and crypto would allow people to get around that. But one of my concerns is that you'd see that the U.S. government in particular, but let's just say Western governments are doing everything they can to try to control the off-ramps and the on-ramps and all of this different stuff. Is it, you know, where do we end up, do you think, five or 10 years from now? Is it just become controlled by governments or how does that work? So I think we have to understand what, what we mean by control. So the idea of crypto is not to be a parallel system, even though you may hear that you know, somewhere. But hmm. but if you look at this seriously, the idea is not to be outside governments, you know, like, you know, some kind of uh, hidden black market place where people transact. That is not the idea. What you have with cryptocurrency is that the cryptography allows you to have, if you will, digital property rights. And what that allows you to do is to hold these cryptocurrencies in self-custody outside the regular banking system and gives you, let's talk about Bitcoin. And I'm going to talk about Bitcoin just to clarify for your audience, because cryptocurrencies is a very broad term. And a lot of this, what we call crypto, it's a bucket of many, many, many different things. Some things that are more centralized, some that are more decentralized, some that are proof of work, some that are proof of stake, some that are governance tokens. Some, so it's they're all very different to each other. So in order to have this kind of conversation, most people, what they have in the back of their head is Bitcoin. So I'm going to talk in this conversation about Bitcoin so, mm. we, so we are on the same page. Okay. So when you come to something like Bitcoin, you have almost digital property rights in that you can hold this, you can custody it outside the banking system. You can transfer it. You can do it peer to peer if you'd like. You can use an exchange that could be decentralized or centralized. It can exist in parallel to any government. It's like a digital commodity. So just as you hold gold, 
you can hold Bitcoin and you may, you know, like the fact that there's digital scarcity, just like there is physical scarcity in gold. And you may think that that is shielding you from potential monetary push inflation. So in that kind of world, you're not looking to replace say the US dollar with Bitcoin, it's just exists just like gold. It's a parallel place where you may want to diversify your savings, for example, your investments mm-hmm. or however you want to think about it. Now, because it sits outside the banking system, then you can transact with it and you are independent from banking troubles like we saw in March this year. The other reason why it's not controlled by the U.S. government or by any government Mm. is because just like a commodity, just like there is no government that controls the supply of gold, there is no government that controls the supply of Bitcoin. So in that sense, the government doesn't control it now. But that doesn't mean that if you want to transact, you know, to and from Bitcoin and you want to use an exchange that is based in the U.S. or whichever country it's based, that you're going to exist outside the legal system. That's not the case. In fact, I think those of us that want crypto to be formalized and institutionalized welcome the fact that we have constructive regulation that allows us to have fiat on and off ramps. And so we can you know, work with the current system to have the opportunity to use crypto when we want and how we want it. But in the sense that there is nobody that controls the supply of how much Bitcoins are in the system. And it's something that is outside the banking system. In that sense, it's separate than your traditional fiat currencies. That's a great explanation, in particular, the idea that, you know, it's been hard enough to get politicians to stop spending, you know, like they they just keep spending and printing. And so with Bitcoin as an example, as you say, let's forget about all the other ones for right now. But for this particular one, there is no centralized control of, hey, let's print some more. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So so you have digital scarcity. And in that, that is what may make this attractive in a world where you see, say, the budget deficits increasing in time, debt increasing in time. You may be concerned that that's going to result in the basement of the currencies, even in the best run central bank in the world because we were talking about you know the Venezuelans and you know and then a lot of these other you know Argentinians and you know Lebanons and all of these other places where you may be concerned whether the central bank is run properly and then people would say oh you know yes but that's not going to happen in the US but yet even in a pristine properly perfectly run central bank you still have a problem that you have fiscal deficits and debt that are increasing worldwide mm. and central bank or a federal reserve whose objective is to maximize the well-being of the collective of society and that may not be aligned with what maximizes the appreciation of your assets so if what is best for a society is to have say lower interest rates and injection of liquidity because say we find ourselves in a recession or in a pandemic or in something like that that will debase the currency or dilute the value of the fiat currency relative to something that is scarce, such as Bitcoin and such as anything else that is scarce that people may invest in. Any other store of value, art, gold, we talked about. So Bitcoin is just one more option that happens to be you know, easily transferable and easy to custody outside the, the banking system. So that's why it's particularly attractive in my view. Well, it's great to talk to an expert like yourself because... I'm not an expert in that space, but I'm observing it and watching what's going on. I remember 
this just reminds me when I was in university many years ago in the US and I was constantly pounding away of, you know, government spending is out of control. Now, this was 1988 <laughs> when I was standing up and debating people to say, we've got to stop government from spending. <laughs> and I would have never have guessed it would have gotten to this point. But, you know, the value of a scarce digital asset or an alternative to being in U.S. dollar I think grows every day as we see what's happening in the U.S. in particular with printing money. It's incredible. <laughs> well, I mean, just that the U.S. has just a lot of liabilities, you know, projected liabilities in time, and it's going to be hard to contain that that spending and avoid the. I mean, according to their own projections, that that's likely to increase over time. So, so I mean, things things can change, but it's certainly a concern. It's a big concern. Well. For those of us outside of the U.S., we're a little bit less concerned about that because we are in other currencies and we care about what happens with our currencies relative to the U.S. But that's a story for another. Which is, which is equally, you know, the U.S. is actually a relatively well-run economy. So for a lot of other emerging markets, you know, even a lot of European, I mean, there there are plenty of other challenges for their fiat currencies as well. Well, I would, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Asia that I'm a big proponent of is being careful with saving and spending. Japan, of course, went out of control with their government borrowing. But if I look at Asian markets around, you know, over the past 20 years, they've definitely been careful about debt at the government level. And countries like Thailand have legislation that they can't go above a certain amount of debt relative to GDP. And so that's interesting. And then also during the COVID time, many countries like Thailand, as an example, you know, simply couldn't go out and print a lot of money to distribute to people because it would have immediately devalued their currency. And so, you know, there was a, a free market constraint to some extent, you know, who knows where it goes. But I, I mean, it, it is tricky. Obviously, it's for a longer conversation. But in my view, just, you know, to keep it short, I think that what Asia has to be concerned about you know, these days is particularly China mm. and China's currency because China's balance of payments has been deteriorating over time mm. and they already have capital controls. So I, I think the fact that capital has been, the balance of payments has continued to deteriorate despite that and there is pressure on the currency and now they have low growth and concerns in their property sector that will incentivize them to stimulate that will also put more pressure on the currency. And if the Chinese currency depreciates, that is likely to put pressure on the rest of Asian currencies as well. Yeah, it's a good point because there's also a lot of government debt, you know, massive amount of debt now in China after, you know, years of pumping the economy. And so let's just look at that for just a bit before we get, we, we got so much to talk about before we even got into this story, but you raised <laughs> this point. And I think it's good for our listeners just to keep it in mind that, it's very possible that in the next, you know, one, three, five years, the Chinese currency could devalue massively. And to adjust a possibility. Yep. To adjust to its situation. And then what does that mean for the rest of Asia? Well, first of all, it means for many, most of the Asian countries, they're not going to devalue to the extent that China does. So it's probably not going to be a competitive devaluation to that extent, which makes products coming out of countries like Thailand much more expensive in the export markets, as an example. And it also makes foreign direct investment into countries like Thailand, as an example, maybe relatively less attractive, although you could say 
foreign direct investment into China if the currency devalues has other other issues that are related to political issues and whatever. But it is a great reminder to just be thinking that it is possible that we see a big devaluation in the Chinese currency over time. And, you know, I haven't, I mean, since I've been doing crypto, I haven't been looking at places like Thailand as closely. But if I remember correctly, Thailand's balance of payments was actually supported by a lot of tourism from China. So if you have a big devaluation in China, then that certainly will affect Thailand. Yeah, because they'll have the currency that they have is going to be worth a lot less. They're not going to travel as much. They're not going to buy as much. And so, yes, Thailand has got 40 million at peak of tourists and probably 20 million of those were Chinese over the last, you know, I don't know, three to five years. So it definitely is is an exposure. Well, my goodness, so much wealth of knowledge that you got. And I appreciate you taking the time to share it. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one (laughs) goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and tell us your story. Yeah, I think it's actually a great uh, podcast idea because I think these, you know, thinking about these things are very useful. And I think anybody that's been in the investment world for a while has plenty of war stories about their bad investments, and we all have them. But what I think makes sense, what I thought about sharing with you today, is the investments that feel the worst to me. And you know, sometimes we make decisions and we're wrong, but to me. What is really, really, really painful is when I lose money and I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Those are really painful. And you don't think about that before getting into investment world. You think I just have to get it right. And if I'm right, I'm going to make money. Well, you know, I'm sorry to tell you that's not the case. You actually can be right and lose money. And so what is there are various reasons for that to happen, but I think the main reason, at least in my experience, is when you are, funnily enough, too early to a trade. And, you know, before getting into investment, I never thought that. I thought, you know, I have to beat the market. So I need to, before anybody else realizes, I need to come up with an insight, an idea or something before it's consensus, and then I'm going to make money. Well, it turns out that there is a lot of tactical considerations on, you know, when to enter that trade. And that's why timing is important. Now, timing in the sense, you're not going to time exactly the day the, you know, the, the trade goes in your direction, but you have to have a general sense of when are the circumstances around your idea you know, ready for the idea to take place, to to run and, you know, for you to, you know, have the appropriate hedges in place, to have the directional view in place and to actually be able to ride with it. And what comes to mind is I had a very good model to trade currencies Mm -hmm. that had worked for many, many years. And then in 2016, 17, 18, it started to wobble. So around that time, I had a, a bunch of episodes where I had put a trade on exchange rates and it just wouldn't go my way or it would take longer. And in this particular case, I'm thinking of the end of 2017, early 2018, when I thought the dollar should be strong and it should rally. And actually the dollar tanked mm-hmm. well into January 2018 and it only started rallying and then it had a fantastic rally but like three or four months later. But by that time, I had positioned myself, you know, such that I had to take chips off the table. And then I wasn't able to to really profit from my idea that ended up playing out a few months later. 
And the reason why that happens, I think, is because we rely on models to help us understand the world, to help us predict what we think is going to happen, to give us ideas and to trade the fundamentals. But it turns out that these models are often based on past data and the world continues to change. And it, you know, it's changing all the time. So I think what is important is to stay humble. And when things are not working, not going your way, to take a step back, reassess what you've been doing, reassess whether you're missing something, your model is missing something, where there is a variable that is new and important, and you're just not taking into account. And then just be more careful with the sizing of your positions and so on. In my case, I mean, there are many things that we can talk about in that period. But I think, for example, one of the important things is my modeling was very focused on interest rates and interest rate differentials. And in time, what became more and more important was the ins and outs of liquidity flows that have become just supremely important as of recent years. And you actually had a, a guest, Michael Howell, which I follow closely on liquidity, because these have, you know, have actually become very, very important for people that like us that are trading currencies. At the time, actually, what had happened is that what everybody follows today, which is the TGA account, the Treasury General account, if you look at a historical time series, that had almost zero importance or fluctuations up until 2016. And you wouldn't have had it in your model. I did not at all. I wasn't even yeah. looking at it. It was like nowhere to be seen. It was like literally like, you know, you can just put out a graph. It's, you know, public. It's in the Federal Reserve. It's like flat. And then it starts having these huge fluctuations of billions of dollars in and out of the system in a mile of months. And that, of course, because it's in dollars and it's the TGA in the Fed, it's affecting the dollar exchange rate in a big way, of course, with some lags and we can go into the details. But I wasn't taking that into account. And it took me a while until I realized, you know, what, what, you know, out of all the noise, out of all the other things that were happening, this was actually a key variable that I ended up having to incorporate, you know, a few years later. Now, of course, I watch very closely, you know, together with many other things. But at the time, because it was new and it was a new big variable that was like, you know, swooshing the shift, the system around, I didn't have it. And yet I was, you know, I was steadfast in saying, I'm going to, you know, stick to my analysis and my fundamentals. I would go over it again and again, my reasoning and everything seemed, <laughs> seemed correct. And it turns out there was an important variable that I was, that I was missing. So lesson learned. <laughs> and I think we all need to, uh, you know, stay humble, make sure that things like that we are, you know, taking them into account. And, you know, once the stage is ready, maybe your idea based on fundamentals and so on can actually play out once all these other considerations are, are out of the horizon. <laughs> it's such a good story because it has so many different factors to it. The first one is that when you build a model, I mean, part of the key success of a model is that you're not changing it all the time. Right. You're trying to build something that can carry you through difficult times that you can rely on and say, nope, going to stick with it because it's worked. And <laughs> it brings up this whole challenge of at what point do you change a model? Yeah. You have to continuously reassess what you are relying on and, you know, looking to it. I mean, and that's why actually the style of trading that I, that I like and that I'm running in my current fund, I call quantum mental, but it's not a systematic 
strategy. What it is, is a strategy that relies on quantitative tools Mm -hmm. and a lot of models that we look at. We look at more than one model, of course. We look at many things, but at the end, the decision is discretionary because there are things the model doesn't know. And that is especially important in the crypto world because of course, you know, we have a lot of idiosyncratic events happening all the time from regulatory events. Obviously, we had this fraud last year, mm-hmm. we had all these things. So you have to have your eyes wide open. You have to continue to vet these things. You have to, you know, use the tools that you have built over the years, but just be make sure that you are assessing them and reassessing them, and making sure you make decisions, in my case, in a discretionary way to allow me to uh, to avoid getting into trouble. Yeah. And the other things that it reminds me of, Michael Howe is great, obviously, for, you know, his liquidity discussions. And one of the things is that after you've been through something like that, there's always some guy, man or woman, who like totally knew that, you know, that they would (laughs) focus on that one thing. And you think, how did I miss that? You know, and it's just so it's so frustrating because you can't be on top of everything in the financial world. And well, so- I mean, in the in the example that I gave you, what happened? I think actually the TGA fluctuations were actually new. You know, like I said, I mean, this this wasn't even a thing before 2016. But what I think there were guys that did know that is the importance, the increasing importance of liquidity in the system, and given that that was an important variable to look at within the liquidity picture. It's something that, yeah, I mean, people that were looking at that very closely must have had a a feel for that earlier than I did, certainly. (laughs) Yeah. And another guest, Danielle DiMartino Booth, talked about, you know, don't fight the flow. And that raises a whole nother aspect that markets are so much influenced now that debt's very high and the Fed and the US government, I mean, it's just, they are just the massive actor that, you know, if you don't call that right, it doesn't matter what you've got right on a micro level. If you don't call that macro, it can destroy you. So So let's now think about, you know, a young person who's, you know, building their models and they're doing their thing and they're doing like you and I did as we were younger and we're confident in what we're doing and we're building that confidence over time. So based upon what you've learned from this and what you've continued to learn, What's one action that you would recommend that they take to avoid suffering the same fate? Oh, I like I said, just stay humble, reassess your, you know, use models, use the tools. That's important, obviously. Mm. But make sure you know what you're using and make sure to reassess and rethink and you know, size your positions accordingly. If things are not going your way, you know, stay humble, take a step back have a smaller size until you can, you know, understand what's happening. I think it's important to be careful, you know, avoid the temptation to just double down because you were so convinced that you're right. (laughs) More like let's take a step back and make sure we understand what's happening. Uh, Stage advice. So now what's a resource that you'd recommend for our audience of your own or any others that come to mind? Well, actually, I don't actually have a resource for trading, but um, mm. I do. I would recommend Michael Howell for liquidity. I think he has fantastic research on that, and he also has a 
for young investors, the non-institutional investors. He has a Substack now that you can subscribe to. So that's that's really fantastic. And of course, you can reach out to me. You can you know look at my LinkedIn page. I try to you know put some commentary once in a while. But these days, it's very focused on crypto. Mm, okay, and just to to mention that Michael's episode with me was so fun that I ended up turning it into a blog where I tried to really break down what he was talking about, which I published just recently called Michael Howell Shares Why We Should Master the Liquidity Cycle to Predict Markets. So yeah, he's got so much to say. Anyways, all right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Oh my God. I mean, we launched this crypto fund in 2022 and it has been a year of a lot of headwinds for the crypto space. I think, unfortunately, a lot of things have happened that have scared some of my uh, prospective clients away and we are growing slower than I was expecting. But I think we are approaching a turning point, both in macroeconomic policy and hopefully on regulatory headwinds. We have a much cleaner landscape in terms of leverage and positioning in the crypto space. So I'm actually quite bullish for the next 12 months in you know the prospects of, of crypto. So I really hope to uh, get my, my young fund up and running into a more mature and established institution. So yes, fingers crossed we get there. It's always darkest before the dawn. The crypto market has taken a lot of hits recently, but eventually those hits get in the price. And then Well, yeah, that, that's that's where the opportunity is. And I think we are, you know, we are we're definitely at a, at a very good entry point these days. I mean, you know, who knows mm-hmm. if this month, two months, three months, but I think over the next year, I'm quite bullish. Okay. Well, listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Tanya, I want to thank you again for joining the mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? (laughs) Please reach out if you're interested in learning more about crypto. I think it's the future. I'm very excited and I'm here to uh, answer any questions anybody has. Fantastic. And we'll have links to all of your, to your LinkedIn and other stuff in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen, so you can reach out. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We got one more person into our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts saying, I'll see you on the upside.